Colossians chapter 3 again. Do you know your body eats itself? Your body eats itself. The process has a, a really good uh, Greek word to describe it. It's called autophagy. The, the principal researcher into autophagy is the Nobel Prize winner, Yoshinori Osumi. He was surprised by what he discovered. A human cell, inside a human cell, a human cell will wrap any defective organelles or proteins in a shield of lipids and then shred them to pieces with enzymes. That wasn't what scientists were expecting. They thought that cells were all about saving proteins, not destroying them. In fact, the cellular biological orthodoxy considered the body's ability to save and build proteins, not tear them down, to be the key to health. And that's why Asumi was so surprised to see this enzymatic wrecking ball destroying proteins. What he learned, though, was that this demolition process was critical to our body's health. Cells put to death broken proteins and malfunctioning organelles, the ones that take from the body but give nothing back in return. They put them to death all the time and recycle them into new proteins and organelles that work like they were intended. Osumi realized that if this process were to stop, the body would begin to fail right away. We're, yeah, I'm thinking, they're all thinking, where on earth is he going with this? <laughs> yeah. We're partway through a series titled Move Closer. Yeah, that really had nothing to do with anything. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> Um, and in this series, the last two weeks, we've been thinking about moving closer to your truer, fuller self, the self that's being constructed on the blueprint or image, that's St. Paul's terminology, of Christ. But as we saw last week, moving closer to our truer, fuller self requires us to move further away from the false and incomplete self. That prof process is like autophagy. The old is put to death. But the desires and energies that made it function are renewed, this is verse 10, or recycled into the emerging, truer, fuller self. You can't move forward in the new renewal process without putting to death, that's verse 5, the broken members of what St. Paul calls the old person. The two go together. That reminds me of the line from the burial liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. In the midst of life, we are in death. But... Maybe it'd be just as true to say, in the midst of life, death is in us. And in some ways, that's a good thing. In verse 9, Paul says, don't lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices, the Greek word is praxis, a set of practices that is customary or ingrained. Lying or intending to hide and deceive is ingrained in the old person. But since you've taken off the old person, when you trusted in Christ, and we're baptized. That's chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Stop lying to each other. Deception is the old false self's protective shield. It keeps the old self in place and prevents the new one, based on Christ's image, from replacing it. In other words, it stops the process of autophagy. But you've taken off the old person in a decisive act when you trusted Christ. You said goodbye to your old life, and you expressed that in your baptism. 
In verse 10, you've put on the new self. You, you did this in a decisive way as well when you trusted Christ, which you also expressed in your baptism. You expressed it in baptism, but you experience it in daily life. It's ongoing. The new self, the new man, literally in Greek, the new person, is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That renewal process takes place as you put off the old person with its praxis and you put on the new with a different praxis. You put on the new person, but you can't do that without taking off the old any more than you can put on a new pair of shoes without taking off the ones you're wearing. Now, but here's the exciting part. Every time you take off something that belongs to the old self, all those things listed in verse 5, verse 8, every time you do that, you create the opportunity for the truer, fuller self to emerge. With that in mind, let's read what Paul says next. This is beginning with verse 12. Therefore, and of course, that is, since you're being renewed, since you're being recycled into this new person in Christ, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, here's a list of instructions. If you come at them as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, verse 12, you'll do well. But if you try to follow these instructions as unwanted people, worthless and uncertain of acceptance, you won't last a week. You have to come at this from a position of strength, not of weakness. Don't look at these instructions as something that you have to do, but as something that you get to do. It's a greater honor than you ever realized. You get to participate in God's great second work of creation if you engage in it with resignation rather than eagerness, you won't succeed. Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with five virtues. <clears throat> Excuse me. Clothe ourselves with five virtues. This is what the well-dressed Christian is wearing. But what does it mean to clothe yourself with a virtue? Does it mean anything at all? And if it does, how are we supposed to go about it? When you put a piece of clothing on, it's a hat, a shirt, pants, you realize that it isn't a natural part of you. You add it to keep your head warm if it's a hat, or to avoid being arrested if it's your pants. Likewise, when you put on a virtue, you're going to realize it's not a natural part of you. It'll feel like it doesn't fit. It feels artificial, put on, maybe even hypocritical. But don't let that feeling keep you from doing it. It's only hypocritical if you're doing it to manage people's perception of you. But if you're doing it 
to obey Christ, or you're doing it for another person's good, or you're doing it just to become a better person, that's not hypocritical. That's Christian. If I act compassionately toward a hurting person in order to make that person or other people around her think I'm such a great guy, that's hypocrisy. If I act compassionately towards that same person because God commands it, or simply because I want to become a compassionate person, that's not hypocrisy at all. See, it is not the absence of feelings that makes a hypocrite, but the presence of deception, particularly deception in the cause of self-promotion. Not only is putting on a virtue, not hypocrisy, it is an essential part of the process of moving closer to your true self. Putting on virtues is part of transformation or metamorphosis, to use the Greek word that St. Paul chooses. It is in some ways like putting on an article of clothing, but in other ways it's different. A piece of clothing never, no matter how long you wear it, becomes a part of you. So I had an old sweater with these patches on my elbows that came pretty close, but it still didn't. But put on a virtue again and again, and it will grow into your very soul. A person who puts on compassion, for example, not as a self-promoting deception, but entrusting obedience to Christ, and does it repeatedly, will become compassionate. Do it often enough, and the compassion you put on the outside will attach itself and grow into you. It's like something out of a sci-fi movie. You will become compassionate. The capacity for that is built right into humans by design. And by the way, that same capacity comes into play with the anti-virtues of verses 5 and 8. Take up anger, put it on, wear it, and it will grow into your soul and become a part of you. The same with malice, deceit, and so on. Humans were designed to work this way. They were made with the capacity to transform into something else, which can be very good or very bad. Now, verse 12, we're to put on, clothe yourself, is how the NIV puts it, compassion. Compassion is a bridge into a foreign land, the foreign land of another person's life. The word is a translation of two Greek words, which means something like responsive mercy. Actually, it's hard to put it into English. A person may deserve judgment, but we respond with mercy. We want them to come through it. We want them to be all right. We want them to do well. This virtue, like all the others in this list, describes God himself. He is, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he is the father of compassion. When we put on compassion, or really any of these virtues, we are God's children dressing up in father's clothes. Besides compassion, we're to put on kindness. This is a derivative of the Greek word Christos, which in the first century was a fairly common first name for guys. Hey, Christos, how you doing? Not Christos, but Christos. Similar. Like compassion, this word is elsewhere used to describe God. God is kind. That's, kindness is how love expresses itself with regard to another person's feelings. Kindness is always conscious of what that other person's thinking, feeling, going through. 
The next virtue is humility. The Greek word makes it clear that this virtue has something to do with our thoughts, but we can really get this mixed up. The King James actually translates this as humbleness of mind. Humility is a particularly Christian virtue. First century, moral, first century moralists outside of the Christian community considered humility a vice, not a virtue. They thought of it as a weakness. Humility was a character defect. Humility is hard to define. It's not gauged, so it has to do with your thoughts, but it's not gauged by what you think of yourself, but by what self does the thinking. Thinking, I'm no good, everybody's better than me, I don't deserve anything, does not make a person humble. You can think all those things and be positively bursting with pride. The difference between humility and pride is that pride looks in. It thinks in. Humility looks out. It thinks out. Humility doesn't say, I'm nobody. It says, everybody is somebody. Whether a proud person is boasting about his abilities or disparaging them, I just can't do anything. It doesn't matter. He does so while making this solo orbit, and it's a degrading orbit as well, around himself. And he will eventually crash into himself and be lost. But the humble person's life orbits around God and does so in the company of others. Humility is the foundation of the other virtues. It enables us to put on compassion because it looks out, see, and kindness. God gives grace to the humble. That, by the way, is repeated over and over again in the scriptures. And the humble person gives grace to the people around him. When we put on humility, and especially when we put on humility, we're putting on God's clothes. Humility is the mindset of the one who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Read that text, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Jesus was not humble, even though he was in very nature God. Sometimes when we read that, we stick that word in there, even though. He was humble because he was in very nature God. This is what God is like. He looks out. He thinks out. Gentleness or meekness is next. One of the first things you know about notice about gentleness is that it feels safe. It doesn't demand. Gentleness is strong, but it's strength that's under control. Gentleness is not a thing you do. You don't do gentle. It's the way you do your thing. Two people can do the same thing, say the same words, but in different ways, one with gentleness and one without. The gentle man or woman is always mindful of other people. The ungentle man or woman is only mindful of the goal. People become a means to reach that goal. Right? The next of those five virtues is patience. In the Bible, there are two Greek words that are routinely translated patience in English versions. This one refers to patience with people rather than patience with circumstances. Instead of demanding instant change from people, patient people give others room to change. And they're able to do that for one reason. They trust God to be involved and don't feel like they have to fix the other person. Think of patience as having two sides, or better yet, having a top and a bottom. 
The bottom side is turned towards the difficult person, but the top side is turned toward God. You will never remain patient with people if you're not being patient with God. The Bible speaks of patience with God as waiting on God. Now, what does it look like in real life when you put on the virtues of verse 12? It looks just like the experience of verse 13. You bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. You forgive as the Lord forgave you. In real life, you know, there's always something about the people around you that bothers you. Even in the healthiest of relationships, there's always something. We bear with that, or it could be translated, we put up with it. Put up with people. We put up with idiosyncrasies and foibles and quirks and all the things that annoy us. These things are, not, are, are morally neutral. They're, they're not sins. They're morally neutral, but they're not the way we would do it. And sometimes we think, well, that's just stupid. Why do you do it that way? You put up with that stuff. Putting up with people can be a spiritual discipline when it's done right and a powerful one. It's the old, broken self, the one that needs to be replaced anyway, autophagy, right, that usually gets annoyed. And so irritations become opportunities to put off and put to death the false self. As such, irritations are a mercy, though a severe mercy to be sure. Accept and be grateful for the things that annoy you. Every time you find yourself irritated by foibles and quirks and idiosyncrasies, you turn to God, you put off that old self with its practices, and you put on the new person. That, of course, will be easier to do if you're becoming practiced at putting on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You put up with quirks, foibles, and idiosyncrasies, even the ones you think are idiotic. You do it as a spiritual discipline. It's all right, put up with it. But you don't put up with sins. Those you forgive. There are a couple words translated, forgive in the New Testament. And they connote different aspects of forgiveness. The one focuses on the sin. It has the idea of sending it away. The idea comes from the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would confess the sins of Israel over the head of a goat. He put his hands on the goat's head, and he would confess over that goat the sins of Israel. It's called the scapegoat, right? That's where that word comes from. And then send that goat with all its sins into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Here are the sins. Send them away. That's probably the, the, the most common word for forgiveness. Afiemi in Greek, send away. Send them away. The other word, the one that we have here, focuses not on the act of sin. That was a terrible thing. Now, it doesn't focus on that, but on the person of the sinner. The sin is sent away. The sinner is not. He or she is forgiven. This word is formed around the, the root charis. Charis is routinely translated as grace. This word is just charisma. It turns grace into a verb. You grace people. We send away the sin, but we grace the sinner with acceptance. 
just as the Lord graced us. The old broken self gets that turned around every time. Rather than sending away the sin, it clings to the sin. It almost cherishes it. The old broken self seasons that sin with the salt of resentment and feeds on it until it poisons itself. It does exactly the wrong thing. It holds onto the sin, but it sends the sinner away. Instead of gracing the sinner, it snubs and ignores him and refuses to have anything to do with him. It clutches the sin and pushes away the sinner. That's the path that the rest of the world follows. But it never led anyone one step closer to their truer, fuller self. It leads instead into a wilderness of self-righteousness and anger and finally despair. The thing that holds all these virtues together, Paul says in the next verse, is love. Humility is the foundation of the virtues. Love is the pinnacle. Paul might be thinking here of how pieces in a soldier's armor were connected to and held in place by a special belt that the Roman soldier would wear. Love holds all the virtues together, and it completes them. But this love, this important, does not originate in the Christian. It's God's love for for the Christian and through the Christian to others. When we love others, we do so as Father God's beloved children. Let me paint you two scenarios. In the first year in a POW camp at the end of World War II, the guards have all fled before the Allied advance, and they took all the food and water with them. It's been two days since you had any. You're locked in this prison camp. You have no food or water, and the Allies haven't arrived. You and another prisoner climb the guard tower to have a look around. You enter. He sits in the doorway, feet dangling, looking down at his fellow prisoners in the yard. And so you see what he doesn't see. In the corner, under an old coat, there is a sandwich and a canteen of water. And just then you hear him say, I am so thirsty, I feel like I'm going to pass out. What do you do? Because you feel exactly the same way. If the Allies don't come soon, that sandwich and canteen might mean the difference between your life and death. Do you give some to your fellow prisoner, or do you hide it and keep it for yourself? Okay, that's the first scenario. Second scenario is similar. You see the canteen and the sandwich, and your fellow prisoner does not. But in this scenario, as you look out the guard tower, you see a long line of American army vehicles coming up the road, including a water tanker and several food trucks. Now, does that make a difference in what you do with that sandwich in that canteen? Will you give some of that water and sandwich to your fellow prisoner? You might be far more generous in the second scenario than in the first. It wouldn't be because you were suddenly a better person, but because you suddenly saw you were going to have all that you needed and more. That's the way it is with God's love. When you see, when you know that you are loved with a love that has no end, you're free to give that love to others. But when you don't see that, and listen, the old false self doesn't see it and it never will when you don't see that you're afraid to give it it is so fundamentally important that we have come to know 
and have come to trust the love which God has in us. That's 1 John 4, 16. Maybe the mo most important thing in this whole list of virtues is not the virtues. It's what comes at the beginning. We are to clothe ourselves, therefore, as God's holy and beloved children. When we get that right, the rest of it can come in place. Okay, I'm going to have to wrap this up. Don't forget you move closer to your truer, fuller self as you move closer to the Lord. That's the trailhead. There is no other. If you want to move closer to your truer self in some other way, go and try it. Let me know how it works out. But to my knowledge, there's only one way, and it's not by trying to move closer to yourself. It's by trying to move closer to Jesus. Remember, too, you must leave behind the practices of the false and deteriorating self. That's Ephesians chapter 4. It's falling apart. You see, the old self is falling apart. You have to move away from it. Put the practices of the old self to death or put them off. When they show up in your life, and they will show up in your life, every one of us has been damaged by Adam's fall and by our own sins. When they show up in your life, don't despair. They're going to do that. Instead, take it as an opportunity. Every time you put off some broken piece of the old self, an opportunity opens to put on the new self. So don't waste time beating the old self up. That's just stupid. Instead, put it to death. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Autophagy, right? And then put on the virtues that are listed in verse 12. If you don't put on virtues to replace the ones you take off, the ones you take off come right back. Now, you can't put on those virtues of verse 12 without taking something off, just like you can't put on a new pair of shoes when you're still wearing your old ones. So take off the practices of the old self, ask for God's help, and then choose to act compassionately, kindly, humbly, gently, and with patience. Choose it and act that way even if you don't feel it at all. It's only hypocrisy if you're trying to deceive someone. Remember that conflicts with other Christians Spouses, children, parents, church members, friends, provide the opportunity to do this. When, not if, when conflict arises, go to God first. I have tried many times to go to the other person first. That's a mistake. Go to God first. Get close to him. That's where you find your truer, fuller self. Then choose to put on these virtues. If that conflict is the result of a foible or an in, in, uh, idiosyncrasy, put up with it. If it's a sin, send it away and grace the person who sinned against you. Grace them. Grace them with your acceptance. If you have been doing just the opposite, which is what most people do, holding the sin close and sending the sinner away, never forgetting the sin, but trying to forget the sinner, then you're delaying your development into your truer, fuller self. You need to send the sin away and grace the sinner. Now, I know, I've been a pastor for 36 years. I know that saying that raises about 100 other questions. Okay? So, 
here's what I'd suggest. Pick up one of the pamphlets on forgiveness that are out there uh, next to the CDs, on the table with the CDs and right next to the Go Deep sheets. Pick up one of those pamphlets and read it. That may answer some questions. Come to Go Deep at Big B Coffee on Wednesday at 6.45 where we're going to explore this further. But whatever else you do, don't let what someone did to you in the past prevent you from becoming the truer, fuller, stronger, joyous, glorious person God intends you to be in the future. Don't let that happen. All right, let's pray. Father, it's obvious we have our work cut out for us. And Lord, you know, you know that we're made out of dust. We get tired so quickly. We get distracted. We want to be distracted. We don't even realize that the old self is fighting to stay alive. There's so much more going on in us than we know. So, so Lord, you know, and we need your help. And because of your love for us, but even more, because of your love for Jesus, Don't give up on us. Give us grace not to give up on ourselves. Make us into that person who reflects the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.